0: Welcome to Movement Conversations, a podcast brought to you by New Generations North America, where we spend time with disciple-making movement catalysts focusing on the core DNA of gospel movement. I'm Roy Moran, your host and the North American Regional Director at New Generations. If you're not familiar with New Generations, we work with God to establish disciple-making movements among the unreached. And we define a movement as a hundred new churches that have arisen out of four generations of disciple-making activity. As of March 2020, we're tracking 128 disciple-making movements among 655 people groups. We're currently engaged in 55 countries and 77 urban centers and affinity groups. It's our hope to share the wisdom that God has granted us in all this movement activity, as well as bring some of our friends to the table and talk about movement DNA. Thanks for joining us. Uh, later, we'll share with you how you can take advantage of the training and coaching networks New Generations is developing in North America. But for now, uh, let's get to our guest for today.
1: Hey, everybody, I'm Matt Patton, and welcome to the Shepherding Conversations from the Heartland School of Ministry, where we have conversations about theology, leadership, and Christian ministry. In this episode, I had the distinct pleasure of talking with author and pastor Roy Moran about disciple-making movements. There are a few things I'd like to get in front of you before we get into the episode. The first is that the Heartland School of Ministry is offering a free online class on Bible interpretation. Uh, you can sign up for this class at hsmkc.org freeclass free class. That's hsmkc.org slash free class. And free classes, all one word. If you'd like to learn more about Roy Moran and disciple-making movements, I would encourage you to check out his website, roymoran.com. It has tons of resources for launching discovery groups and much more. You can also find his book, Spent Matches, on his website and on Amazon. Okay, well that's all the housekeeping items, so let's get into our conversation with Roy. Welcome to the Shepherding Conversations. I am Matt Patton with the Heartland School of Ministry. Unfortunately, Kent couldn't join us today. But today, we do have the pleasure of speaking with the pastor of Shoal Creek Community Church, uh, local disciple making movement guru, and author of the book Spent Matches, uh, Roy Moran. Roy, thanks for being here.
0: Thanks, Matt. Great to be here.
1: Yeah, excited to talk to you. You are kind of a a local expert on some of these ideas regarding disciple making movements. And so before we get too far into the conversation, uh, I want to you know make sure we catch up any listeners that aren't familiar with that terminology. What is DMM? What is a disciple making movement?
0: Well, it, uh, it, it's a, a general word has a specific meaning for a lot of people. For me, uh, a disciple making movement is a is a gospel activity that plants the gospel in the way that it repeats itself um, very, very easily. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, Typically when you get it to, it goes to four generations. So uh, we're talking about groups now, groups, birth, groups, birth, groups, birth, groups Uh, at that fourth generation. Plus um, I like to see it go sideways as well. I I think uh, that you reach the movement stage when you've got four different streams Um, uh, So that when the DNA reaches four generations, uh, typically you have somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred groups that are represented in that four by four configuration. And at that point, you know, you've pretty much got the kind of basic uh, gospel DNA that's replicating well. You've got disciples are making disciples are making disciples um, uh, through uh, a ability to help people look at the Bible. Uh, discover what it says about God, um, identify what they're going to do about it, and share it with their friends. And so that basic uh, OS, that operating system that that works inside it, creates that replication as it moves Mm -hmm. forward.
1: So a lot of this, from my understanding, uh, has come from observing rapid movements of the gospel in in often other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that, uh, are really distinctive about these kinds of movements?
0: Well, typically you'll find that uh, there's a high level of obedience focused in this. So it's a, you know, people refer to it as obedience-based disciple-making. Um, and so that, that idea that um, the subject matter expert is not a human, but it's the Word of God. Uh, oftentimes uh, you find in arenas where you're dealing in... Uh, cultures that have uh, strong um, other major religions, Muslim, Hindu, and those kind of things, you'll find a a high level of the miraculous that exists there. And so people are having dreams, people are being healed, and and this miraculous is is opening up doors to the gospel. People are coming to grips with uh, the fact that um, there is this... uh, you know, there's a, a Jesus, a Messiah, and uh, so they, they begin to turn uh, to him. Um, in that, there's also uh, always when you find a, a strong movement, when you find a movement that's that's uh, doesn't just uh, you know move quickly and stop, but it moves and, and continues to move. There's always a strong level of mentoring and coaching that exists inside that, and so it's like no one stands alone. Uh, every generation. As it moves away, it it still has this undergirding of a strong shepherding piece to it. Um, And there's just a centrality to the Word of God. The, mm-hmm. that the Bible is that subject matter expert and everything is measured on the basis of, of what the Bible has to say, mm-hmm. not necessarily some human expert, you know, a uh, teacher or something like that. So, right. um, and everyone has that sense, that mm-hmm. every disciple has that sense of being a multiplier um, and being, uh, having the, um, uh, the, the kind of confidence that they could look at the Bible for themselves Um, whether they're literate or non-literate and uh, and hear the stories and be able to respond on the basis of that.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So the idea of discipleship is not like a new idea. I mean, obviously, Um, I think people have written books, tons of books on discipleship and um, it's talked about in almost every church that you go to. So, you know, the idea of discipling is common discipling other people uh but discipling disciple makers who go on to you know disciple others Mm -hmm. feels kind of rare um why do you feel like that that is that's the case
0: well i think you when you get into this arena for me at least um uh, there's a mindset shift that has to take place um I think it's chapter four of spent matches where I I delineate at least ten in my own mind that that had to take place, um, and and the first is you know I I am a graduate of a, a very well known academic seminary in the U.S. Um, I've been trained in just about every parachurch group's discipleship programs mm-hmm. uh, and use them uh, to to some success um, in that sense. So I'm not unaware of all of that, but. Uh, what happened is is when I began to make the shift from understanding that most of my discipleship was about knowledge acquisition and that when I ran into uh, movements overseas, I discovered that it wasn't about knowledge acquisition. It, it was about obedience. You know, it was about doing what God says rather than about knowing what God says. That made a radical shift. So it was smaller amounts of truth acted on as opposed to the consumption of large bodies of truth, trying to understand and develop systems around that truth. But it was these smaller amounts of truth that led to you know, people really beginning to, to do what God says and, and caused it to really redeem them deeper and and also began to affect the community they were in mm-hmm. and the and the practices that, that they had. So I think that that's one major shift, you know, that had to take place. And within that you see that, that obedience, you know, it's from knowledge to obedience, you know, makes a, a radical difference, you know, in that piece.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, from from reading your book, uh, kinda I kind of began to see that you were uh, Shoal Creek is kind of coming out of a secret church type Mm -hmm. approach Mm -hmm. willow creek and bill hybels um what 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 for you kind of really began to force you to you know start examining that you know if that's really going to get the job done so to speak and caused you to start really looking elsewhere
0: yeah well it's a dangerous question here (laughs) um so um you know, in 2003, we moved from rented facilities to facilities that we were able to buy. And all of a sudden, it was like someone put us on the map and Shoal Creek began to grow. Um, and so we, we doubled in the first year and we doubled again. And all of a sudden, we've got this rapid growth and this brand new facility. It's old, It was old, but it's brand new to us. And we looked at it and we thought, geez, we're going to be out of this soon. You know if, if this keeps up and we're, we're gonna have to figure out somehow how to raise money uh to buy another piece of property and we could just barely raise the money we got you know to get into that and we just decided that that we didn't want to do that and so we asked the question what what would it look like to find a scalable model of ministry that wasn't fixed on buildings um trained leadership you know Mm -hmm. having to hire staff coming in that kind of stuff but could we create an indigenous multiplying so we had this this very um maybe idealistic thought that 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 could happen so we just started looking you Mm -hmm. know and we just looked everywhere um and found nothing in the u.s that would really fit but at the same time in my own personal life um as I'm, i'm reading um, you know, books like uh, "The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church and Its Hindrances." Um, I I had a dream. It's kind of dangerous to say that because I'm a S- Dallas Seminary graduate. So <laughs> people from Dallas Seminary, you know, don't aren't theologically capable of having dreams. I don't think. But um, so I had a dream, and and that dream uh, related to God answering our prayer. Uh, we had prayed regularly that 300,000 people in the the clay county and surrounding areas would come to faith because of us that we'd make it hard for them to go to hell and uh, i had a dream that they all decided one sunday morning to come to shoal creek and God exposed in that dream my strategy which was to collect people at a spot on a sunday morning and an attempt to do very creative arty things that would interest them in a discussion about this profound truth that Jesus left heaven, came to earth, uh, you know, lived and died and rose again, so that they could have a, they could help bring the kingdom from heaven to earth now and live in that in kingdom forever. So, I just realized that with those three hundred thousand people coming, they all got stuck on the freeways nothing you know we don't have infrastructure that make it possible if they got there in the first place there's only 425 parking spots (laughs) and there's only you know 1200 seats in the auditorium you know so we have two services but that still doesn't even make a dent you know Mm -hmm. And and it just exposed the fact that um that my strategy and my prayers were different and in that book spontaneous expansion of the church um the author says, not quite a quote, but he says something to the effect that when your strategy and your prayers don't match up, you, you might want to check your strategies because they're more f- focused on your history and your culture, and your prayers are probably more focused on God in his heart. Hmm. And so that gave me the predisposition to doubt my strategy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we just, that, that gave us the fuel to look as far and wide as we could mm-hmm. and and God allowed us to stumble across what was then known as City Team International a group of people um, and uh, they began to be mentors and coaches of mine to help me understand what was happening in their cultures and, mm-hmm. and help me figure out how I could bring it to my culture and, and see if the same thing could happen.
1: That's cool. So what was it like um, you know, you've been doing things at your church one way for a long time and then trying to lead your congregation in a pretty new direction. Uh, there's that Monty Python line and now for something completely different. <laughs> um, so how did that, how did that go for, for you and your, your congregation?
0: Well, you know, it's funny. Um, um, uh... That that phrase uh, is is one of those uh, leadership lessons that you learn. Um, Will Mancini, I don't know if you know, wrote the book Church Unique. Um, Will's a good friend. He he says that uh, every time you change language, you lose about three years. Hmm. Um, and I didn't know that at the time, uh, but I thought I was just slightly changing language, um, and as, as but. The reality is, is that people were hearing it radically different. So, um, uh,
1: just pause you a little bit. What do you mean? What does it mean to lose three years?
0: Well, it, it's like the momentum toward a vision, and, uh-huh. and, and and people stop and they thought the train was headed to this destination. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you start using different language. Mm-hmm. And now they're trying to figure out are you headed to a different destination? Mm-hmm. And so their energy reduces you know they're 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 confused and Mm -hmm. they're using mental energy to figure out how to follow you Mm -hmm. and they don't know exactly what the next step is Mm -hmm. and and where you're leading and so um and and i love words um i love to play with words um probably uh have learned the lesson you know, the Monty Python lesson there, you know, and when you say now for something completely different, um, you know, people stop and they're thinking, Oh no, here we go again. You know, we were going in that direction. Now we're going that direction. I thought it wasn't completely different. I thought it was slightly different. Right. You know, I thought it was just, this is a a nuance and it wasn't a nuance in people's minds. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's what birthed the hybrid metaphor was, um, you know, we were, we, we grasped this idea that, uh, the gospel, that collecting people at this site was not going to fulfill the great commission. Although we weren't opposed to what we were doing and we didn't think what we were doing was that bad Mm -hmm. or, or it was somewhat effective. Mm -hmm. And so we weren't really ready to get rid of it. You know, we had a team of people who loved doing it, still love do it and that kind of stuff. But we also realized that we needed to move in other directions as well. And so, the idea of having a gasoline engine and a, an electric engine, two power plants, you know, in the same vehicle. A local fellowship having two power plants. You know, one strategy that says come, the other strategy that says go, uh, arose because we're training people to lead discovery groups. And it's just you know small groups of people who just gather their neighbors together, read the Bible, discover what God has to say about life, live it out, obey it, and and share it with their friends, and. Telling them not to invite people to come on Sunday morning, that we'll establish, you know, ecclesias, biblically functioning communities where you live, learn, work, and play, and we'll help you, you know, form those those ecclesias, neighborhood churches, house churches, however you know they wanted to, um, and it was just like you know, for the American culture, that's a that's a different breed. Um, you know, we are such a church culture. Um, when people's spiritual genes kick on, they think about coming to a building on Sunday morning, not going to a house mm-hmm. or to a, someplace else. So, um, it was just, uh, it was hard, you know, yeah. for people to get their minds around.
1: So that is uh, when I read that in your book, and I, I've heard you share about that before. I mean, it kind of struck me as pretty odd. Uh, I think part of my instinct is like, well, what's the harm in inviting them to Shoal Creek mm-hmm. on a Sunday? Like, mm-hmm. what what do you what do you lose when if you do mm-hmm. that?
0: Well, um, there's no harm mm-hmm. in, in doing that. Yeah, it, it, but at the same time, um, it, it, this is, you know, no research whatsoever, just sort of a hip pocket type thing is we feel like what we watch is is uh, the strategy of inviting people, the attractional strategy or the collecting strategy. We watch people invite and invite and invite and invite people and friends and, and get into a frustration level because after, you know, that about a 3 to 5 year period they don't have any friends to invite. Mm-hmm. People aren't just inventing friends over and over and mm-hmm. over. I mean, there are a few, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are the, the wildly you know extroverts that just make, you know, hundred friends a day type stuff, you know, but most people don't have you know, more friends. So over time there were, there weren't anybody else to invite. And we discovered that, you know, as we, as leaders were really giving them tools and, resources to invite people and creating great programs for them to invite people to, um, that invitation was becoming an irritation, you know, in their personal relationship. They just weren't coming. Mm -hmm. So we kind of figured that in our, you know, where we're at, which is, you know, north of the river here, but not too different from most of Kansas City uh, middle to upper middle class, uh, mostly white suburban types, you know, there's about 50% of them that just are never coming to church. I mean, they, I don't care what you do. You can, you know, you can put on, you know, put up pole dancers and strippers on Sunday morning and, and they're not coming. I mean, that, you know, I mean, I don't care. Oh,
1: if you had pole dancers, you might get a few more. <laughs> I don't
0: know. Uh, but you know, I mean, you could go crazy and, yeah. and, and it, it just doesn't really matter. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, uh, so, the idea of what do we do for the rest of those people yeah you know and and so we realize that that the issue was not about them coming to church and you know, we stopped trying to climb that mountain and we have two different strategies you know we we do have a strategy on sunday if you got a friend that'll come great but if not um you know we also feel like the only way we're going to reach the great commission in this city is by planting the gospel where people live learn work and play mm-hmm. so we've got to help them Develop these ecclesias, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that go away from us rather than come toward us. Uh, so it's, there's nothing wrong with it, but yeah. at the same time, it's it's probably not going to be an effective tool for fulfilling great commission.
1: Yeah. So these smaller groups, these ecclesias, as you're calling them, um, there there is sort of an invitation involved in that as well, though, mm-hmm. right? There's an invitation to a discovery group, for yeah. Example. Yeah. So. How do you overcome, even in that context, the challenge of like tapping your relational network mm-hmm. where uh, I've asked everybody that I know mm-hmm. to do a discovery group and gotten a bunch of no's. Mm-hmm. What do I what do you do?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think you know the the word attractional kind of gets dumped on today. You know, people say, well, you know, it's attractional versus missional and all this kind of stuff, but but there is an attractional element to every part of gospeling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. always. I don't care whether it's at the organizational level or at the personal level, you know, there is some attractional nature to it, um, and stuff. And so we just, you know, want people to think, um, with the, we want God's heart to be in their eyes and to look at where they go. Um, you know, it, it, I don't know if you've gotten there and spent matches yet, but I, I, I take the great commission I, uh, I maybe do sacrilege from some people, but I take the command out of the go because it's really not an imperative in the original language. It's as you go, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think the, the assumption that Jesus had is is that, you know, walking down the street where you go in your normal life, you need to consider his last command as your first priority. Um, and, and that's what he calls us to. Mm-hmm. He doesn't call us to productivity. He calls us to faithfulness, you know, in that sense. And so, Um, if you don't have anybody left to ask, you know, that that's not, not you, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the poor God's planted you and and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we usually though find that people can look at those four live, learn, work and play. And, and one of those four are the places where they kind of have eyes for, they have hearts and most Americans spend more time at work than they do any place else. So I happen to believe that the, the marketplace is probably a, a way undertapped place for the gospel to move. Mm-hmm. And I'm involved with some folks who are doing some experiments of planting the gospel and, and trying to plant, you know, these biblically functioning communities where people work, mm-hmm. you know, actually in, in the workplace and stuff. Uh, I think that's got a, a, a large play, you know, in our culture now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think there uh, needs to be any guilt, you know, in, mm-hmm. involved in not having anybody left to ask um, in that process.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So one of the things that I've, I've sort of been picking up is, uh, as I've been learning about this stuff, is there is sort of an emphasis on um, sort of releasing people pretty early in the process to mm-hmm. try to Form new groups or reach out to new people so and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of disciple others pretty early on in even their own uh, spiritual growth, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, I've heard this metaphor before. Uh, spiritual leadership is like a power tool. Uh, in the hands of someone mature, it can do a lot of good, but in the hands of someone who's immature, it can do a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess how do you um is is there some risk involved is there some danger here to taking someone who's pretty spiritually immature for example and and sort of sending them in that way so early um you know i think about in the new testament there's a few spots where paul's talking about qualifications for a leader a uh, deacon or overseer or whatever mm-hmm. and and that they're pretty i mean they make me like oh, oh dang that's that's mm-hmm. pretty intense stuff. So, how do you kind of navigate that? What are um, you know, is, is that a point of tension or what do you, what's your feeling about some of those things?
0: Well, there's always risk, Mm -hmm. you know, and everything uh, that's involved. So you can't limit the risk. But I think the examples that Jesus gives us, you know, with people like the one with the well, people like the the demoniac that's healed, you know, he asked to stay with Jesus and Jesus says, no, go back and Mm -hmm. tell him what's happened to you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, those clear examples, uh, I I think help us, at least for me, help me understand another mindset shift that has taken place. Um. I grew up, um, with a reproductive mindset. So that reproductive mindset is that, uh, I have a grandson, you know, um, a couple of grandsons and, and, uh, they're young now, you know? And so our, my dream for them is to grow as young men, to develop hearts for God and, you know, finish their education. And then, you know, in their early twenties or whatever, meet, meet a young lady and, and, uh, get married and and then you know spend a few years have uh, early marriage and then you know have kids and that kind of stuff and and that reproductive kind of thing has has this idea that it takes time mm-hmm. um, but you know one of the things I, I think I take from Jesus examples in, in the, the, the Gospels is is that it's more replication than reproduction because if you think about a virus as opposed to the reproductive mentality a virus the moment it has life, um, it's 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 viral it has the ability to reproduce mm-hmm. and and so that that's what's happening i think in these movements is as as people's uh, spiritual genes begin to light up um, they are the most contagious mm-hmm. in their life and i think we see that over time yeah. you look at all the research that shows that you know the longer a person you know is a follower of jesus the less productive they become that's you interesting. know and so um what what's the antidote here i think and and you have to keep in mind is that the antidote here is is not knowledge the you know um it's it's obedience in that sense is that we're not asking this person to go out and teach someone you know sound doctrine mm-hmm. we're we're asking them to go out and put the Bible in front of someone and let the spirit of God walk them into the kingdom mm-hmm. and so it's a it's a radically different thing mm-hmm. and and really most people. Cannot understand it until they placed they're placed in the middle of it, Mm -hmm. you know. And you you stand someplace that's totally foreign to you, like say a village in northern Kenya, and you line up, you know, fifteen generations of people, and you start to hear these stories uh, of of these generations, and and you start to interact with these people about what they understand about Jesus, and uh, I mean, it's just like oh my gosh. I would put them up against, you know, <laughs> any any person sitting in the most well taught church in America, uh-huh. yeah. uh, because first of all, their their first response is obedience. Yeah, you yeah. know, so if you point out to them in the scriptures and 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 hearing the stories about the way, for instance, treatment of women has radically been transformed because the men have come to realize that that the Bible says that they should love their wives like Jesus loved the church. Mm. And that hitting their wives and treating their wives in, in, in ill ways, you know, watching uh, polygamists come to grips with the fact that the Bible uh, inc- encourages them to have one wife and mm-hmm. how do they deal with those other women that, that they have you know brought into their homes and how do they love them in a sense, uh, show the love of Christ to them, but not marital love in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching all of those crazy things happen and people put the Bible to central, not some human authority trying to tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. They do it with, uh, with such sincere, um, beautiful, pure ways. and wow. it's the love of Christ that, that really abounds in that, those kind of environments. That's really interesting. We'll get back to our guests in just a minute, but I wanted to share with you how you can access some of the New Generations resources. If you go to newgenerations.org, you can keep up with New Generations and its global efforts around the world by jumping on the mailing list, getting regular updates about what God is doing. We house resources for disciple-making movements at disciplemakingmovements.com. And we keep our North American friends together at newgenerations.us and newgenerations.ca. Don't rewind to get all that. Uh, it'll be in the show notes. Or you can take a look at newgenerations.us. Look for the podcast, and all that information will be there.
1: We were talking to Jim West um, earlier this week, and, uh, and one of the things that struck me i mean i'm making this connection from what you're saying is he went to princeton you know and and learned from some really smart people obviously but he kind of shared that as being one of the darkest times in his Mm -hmm. spiritual life Mm -hmm. uh kind of being filled with knowledge although i guess it was kind of the education was a little postmodern, so maybe they were sucking the knowledge out a little (laughs) bit (laughs) but um but at the same time you know it's, it's very academic type of approach and uh of create a lot of mm-hmm. darkness in his life mm-hmm. yeah as i was reading your book one of the, the kind of some of the ideas i was wrestling with is is that there are some parts of the christian faith that are i mean complicated like they're not simple ideas like the relationship between faith and works, for example and it's kind of a it's kind of a tough idea to wrap your head around and and yet at the same time it has a lot of stakes like if um If you think that you're justified before God by what you do, you can descend into this spiral of shame and it can be pretty messy. Conversely, if you um, think that faith has nothing to do with what you how you live, then uh, you well, you can live a pretty hedonistic life and so on and so forth. So uh, how do you how is it that you can kind of replicate Christianity so rapidly without sort of this emphasis on knowledge acquisition and, and yet still people can grasp these really pretty complicated ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. Kind of has a multifaceted answer. So stop me if I get too far afield here, but I, I would start with the idea of faith. Um, uh, you know, the word pistis, um, you know, faith, trust, Um, I I love to translate that word trust rather than faith because I think it's truer to the original intent. When you think about faith today, we all have faith that tonight the Chiefs are going to make a comeback and beat the Broncos. Um, Faith has that kind of content to it. It's it's this mental ascent. And we don't quite understand how it affects our mind, emotions, and will. But for me, trust does. Trust, if you define it as living as if it's true. So what God says about me, you know, I'm, um, I'm a depraved individual. You know, I have absolutely no way of saving myself or, or making God like me in any way. That is only an act of, of uh, his will that, that creates in me an ability to have an identity as a son of the most high God. Um, so when I trust, um, then the idea of trust and works to me doesn't don't get separated. It's it's like it walks right into one another. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, in, a, in an obedience based uh, disciple making movement strategy, you know, we're we're just basically helping people to start trusting. Uh, and and I don't quite understand you know the Ordo Salutis, you know, and. You know, whether I'm a lapsarian or infralapsarian or superlapsarian or all that kind of stuff, you know, what comes first, what comes second. I don't quite understand the operation of the spirit uh, in making someone dead alive. But what we see is, is that someone, you know, uh, they, they begin, this light comes on. And at some point, you know, it, and I only had the opportunity to see that happen in my own life um, to, to really believe it. I had three guys Early on at Shoal Creek, we began to meet at uh, V Deli and start reading Romans together. And I don't know where they came to faith, um, and I think they probably couldn't tell you either mm-hmm. at, at some point. But, but through reading the Book of Romans, you know, all three of these guys today are genuine disciple-making followers of Jesus. Cool. You know, so I, I watched it happen before my eyes and stuff. So I think in that scenario that's what happens you know in that process so the idea of making god like me earning his favor um, doesn't really become a reality in that sense because um, when the bible is a subject matter expert and god says you know all of sin and fall short of the glory of god you know just you believe it and it mm-hmm. says you know for by grace you saved through faith not of yourself you 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 trust it yeah you, know, you live it out mm-hmm. and What happens is, is that, and uh, the reason you know we we see so much uh, transformation is that people's lives they truly are. It's like they are bringing heaven to earth, you know, just as Jesus prayed and taught us to pray, you know. So that that really starts to happen, you know, in people's lives, Um, and and over time they grow a profound understanding of Jesus on the cross, and it, it doesn't become a place to stop. In a sense, it's just about forgiveness, but it's a door to a new way of living mm-hmm. uh, that happens for them, and and so there's not a, a sense in which I could depend on my own flesh to create in God some kind of um, smile toward me or so. It's mm-hmm. just it's all because of Jesus. So mm-hmm. I think that's you know that's the nature uh, of that, um, and over time you know people grow in their understanding. So. Think about this in terms of uh, you know a philosophy of education. Um, there, there's got to be a, there's got to be knowledge. You know, I mean it's 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 new information or whatever. There's knowledge, but uh, there's also a, a moment where that knowledge has to have some type of operating uh, activity in inside us. So we've got to know, and then we've got to start to be different, and then therefore we do different. So mm-hmm. know, be, and do. Um, and I think what happens, you know, in the, in terms of this uh, knowledge to obedience culture is that, that we, we get hung up on the knowledge. And so we think if I will put more and more and more knowledge in here, then it will change the be and it will change the do. But, but it's just like what happens in our bodies. If I take in too many calories in a day and, and I don't exercise, um, all of a sudden, obesity becomes a problem. And I think we've created a, a kind of an obese Christian culture. Hmm. They've gorged on knowledge. Mm-hmm. And and so in the disciple making movement strategy, what happens is is, is it's, there's still knowledge, there's still a transfer of information in a sense, but it's smaller mm-hmm. and it's acted upon. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's the same way that happens with calories in the spiritual world. You know, mm-hmm. If I take them in, I hit the gym in the morning, and I'm exercising and stuff, so those calories get converted into good things in my body. And mm-hmm. I think the same thing happens in a, in a disciple making movement world as those, that knowledge, the small bits of knowledge get converted, you know, into the kind of spiritual energy that transforms people's lives.
1: Mm-hmm. Cool. So, yeah, when we're, we're talking about a really rapid spread um, of the gospel and uh, we are, you know, as we, T- mentioned, we're talking about frequently pretty young Christians. And so w- I think a natural question is, how do you kind of deal with theological drift mm-hmm. um, in different pockets of mm-hmm. of this movement? Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: if I could just speak to the rapid thing for a mm-hmm. moment, it's, it's, you know, n- no one's interested necessarily in it, it moving rapidly. It's not like, you know, the human flesh comes on and says, let's push the gospel as fast <laughs> as we can. You know, it's like, it's just that, you know, what happened, you know, um, when, um, David Garrison wrote his church planting movements deals is they, they observed that it was moving rapidly, mm-hmm. you know? So it was like these practices, uh, these, these sort of principles coming out of the gospels allowed the gospel to move rapidly. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a flesh type thing to mm-hmm. kind of push it. Um, but, uh, you, you no matter what, um, you know we've always seen that um that heresy is is a part of almost anything that's ever happened in in christian jesus you might consider judas you know as a heretic in that sense Mm -hmm. Um, paul constantly you know in his letters you know to the churches fought heresy there um the early church you know fought heresy um as as we know from you know study of church history and in fact um just recently, the Ligonier and Lifeway um, Ministries did a study together of uh, major evangelical churches and discovered that, guess what? You know, heresy abounds, you know, in in uh, Christianity Today's article on it, um, um, maybe 18 months ago or so, you know, identified that, uh, I don't know exactly what it was, but but maybe one out of every two people sitting in a in a evangelical pew in America adhere to at least one of ten major heresies in the local church I mean Mm -hmm. in in history of the church you know Mm -hmm. so even when you have great bible teaching of heresy um, but one of the things we observe in the disciple making movements um, is is that um, it's not as prevalent as most people would think Um, when you uh, when you look at an obedience-based culture um, they're not trying to find ways to understand the scriptures, they're trying to find ways to live it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, every Sunday uh, I still speak on a regular basis at Shoal Creek, and to maintain that that collecting type strategy that has, you have to say something interesting. You know, you have to say something, something kind of new that people haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. So just the form of the way we do church today, puts me on the edge of heresy every That's week, interesting. <laughs> you know, I, I've got to be, you know, novel, unique, mm-hmm. you know, like that kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so it, 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 tempts me, you know, every week toward, toward heresy. Um, these folks aren't doing that. They aren't looking for something new and unique and in, uh, internal. They're looking for ways to live it out.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and those are found in their life, not found in their mind, you know? And so, Heresy is not so prominent, you know, in in these movements that are disciple that, that are obedience based simply because uh, they don't have the Western minds like we do. Mm-hmm. You know, the Western minds looking for new and unique and, you know, that kind of stuff. And they're just looking for ways to live this out.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, imagine you're talking to someone um, Well, you are talking to someone who's wanting to <laughs> figure out how to put some of these ideas into practice. Yeah. Um imagine you're talking to someone who might be a lead pastor of a church. Mm-hmm. How would you advise them, suggest solutions to them about maybe steering their congregation in a, in a new direction?
0: Well, you know, I'd go back to Monty Python mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and I would be really careful about, um, treating this as a public type of strategy. Um, those of us who are in leadership in Western churches are very program oriented. We're very, you know, we've got the newest thing from Francis Chan or Matt Chan. We're mm-hmm. coming down the pike and we're going to do this program or this, that kind of stuff. And, and this really is, is radically different because it's getting people to think differently. So in um, spent matches, um, I had an argument with my publisher about the use of the word terrorism and terrorists because It came out in 2015, about the same time that the Boston bombers were being tried and convicted and sentenced. And they were all afraid that, you know, if I use that word, you know, and kind of stuff. But I do think that terrorists think in a way that we need to adapt. You know, Uh, they think about the edges, we think about the center. Um, we want to get up and be as loud as we can and as colorful and print brochures and that kind of stuff. They just work around the edges for the, the highly dissatisfied people. So, if you know, as a leader in a church, I, I would look for those highly dissatisfied people that that are feeling like, wow, we could do so much more. The kingdom should be so much more powerful than it is. Mm-hmm. Why is it that we're not, you know, making more impact in our community? And I always encourage people to look look for the people that are volunteering outside your local fellowship that are already in the community volunteering look for the people with a lot of non-believing friends Uh, sometimes the people that you're frustrated with because they won't volunteer for your nursery but they'll do other things in the community those are the people you want to find because they seem to have a a kingdom heart already Hmm. and I would gather them together and and I would start planting seeds you know read books like miraculous movements by Jerry Trousdale the kingdom unleashed uh, Jerry Trouser and Glenn Sunshine or uh, uh, Contagious Disciple Making by David Watson, I, w- I would read those books um, and, and together and just begin to pray, you know, God, what what could you do? What would you do? How, how, how would you want us to act differently mm-hmm. um, in that way? And so begin to foment kind of a, just like a terrorist would, you know, a small terrorist cell of people, uh, <laughs> but but get to the ground quickly. You know, don't try to recruit everybody to come along with you. Just get out into the community. Try starting some discovery groups. You know, try to figure out, you know, where you can can work at it. Most of the people don't realize that when you read miraculous movements, you see this uh, sweep of the gospel across sub-Saharan Africa, which, um, you know, I, I think somewhere around two million disciples have been made in that. Uh, 60 plus thousand churches have been planted in the 15 to 17 years that that story is taking place. but you don't see the first nine years in that book and the first nine years were were just chaos. Hmm. Uh, there was a lot of fits and starts and stops and attempting to figure out what this would look like and how do we how do we change because we have to change our behavior we have to take those mindset shifts and stuff. so I'd be patient you know to work with a few people. And and um, I think the um, it's the Navy SEALs who have this little phrase they say, um, uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And so when they're talking about, you know, when you, if you ever watch Navy SEALs, you know, training or movies and that kind of stuff, you know, they move slow, you know, and, and that's the idea. Slow is smooth. You know, we can follow each other. We can make progress. But smooth ultimately allows us to go fast. Hmm. Um, David Watson used to, is, is fond of saying that, um, that, you know, you need to go slow to go fast. And that, that's that, that idea of just start with a few people, learn um, learn together, get to the ground fast don't try to make structural changes don't go to a board and try to get approval to do things that kind of stuff it's just not that kind of strategy Mm -hmm. that works well in a bureaucracy Mm
1: -hmm. well that makes a lot of sense um so you've been at this for for quite some time Mm -hmm. um how has the journey gone so far in putting some of these ideas in practice what and what have you learned so far
0: it's a lot harder than I thought. <laughs> um, you know, I I um, right off the bat, uh, we we, we um, did not follow the advice that I just you know shared with you. We we went as wide as we could pretty quickly, got a lot of people trained and got had a lot of activity, started a lot of groups, um, and we found that it was really easy for Americans to start a discovery group. You know, just to ask your neighbors. Hey, we're gonna read the Bible and discover what God has to say about life. Would you like to do that? And um, we found about six out of every ten people said yes. Wow. You know, so it's like most people would think, Oh I'm gonna read the Bible, eh, you know, and don't start in Genesis because you're getting fights over, you know, creationism and evolution. I go, Well, we didn't find that to be true, you know. We didn't find that 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 apologetic type thing was was really important in the average non-believer's minds. You know, they were interested; they really were genuinely interested in spiritual things. God and Jesus and the Bible were were something they wanted to learn about. But they just were afraid of Christians. They're afraid of people cramming things down their throat. Mm-hmm. So when you provided a neutral atmosphere where they could make decisions for themselves, uh, they f- they found it very very pleasant. So and right off the bat, we 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 got to four generations. You know, we we all of a sudden we thought, oh, we we you know caught lightning in a bottle here you know Um, I'm sure all the Christian publishers are going to be here knocking on our door to write (laughs) books and I'm going to be on the stage of every you know big major conference telling (laughs) them how to do it and stuff but we discovered that there's a certain type of leader Uh, when we were making the shift our first leaders were the um, uh, prototypical leaders uh, extroverts a lot of personal power Uh, they could push things away from them pretty well And so they got us to four generations, but, but that stops Mm. and and that won't go uh, very far at all. And so we went back into a a rethinking mode because we couldn't get past four generations. And we realized that we live in a disconnected culture. All of the places that we were learning from were connected cultures. Um, Some of them still patriarchal, matriarchal. Um, Some of them still, you know, time was there. Um, core commodity that they all had and so some of these groups would meet two three four times a week uh, because they had time and in wow. our culture it's like man, if you can get people to meet for 75 minutes once a week <laughs> you know you're lucky you know uh-huh. it's like time is one of our chief rival gods um, that we had to deal with and so um, it it has become like pushing a boulder up a hill for me you know in a sense is that The momentum never seems to get there, but it's still slowly but surely we're finding, you know, different things. So the one experiment we did in a neighborhood um, around where I live is um, we discovered it was becoming gentrified. You know, a lot of young couples with young kids moving in to these old houses. They loved the porches and they loved the sidewalks and that kind of stuff, but they had no clue about how to be a neighbor, you know that they, they wanted a neighborhood, but they didn't realize that neighborhoods were made up by people who loo- knew how to be neighbors. And so, we had a young couple who gained a passion for that. Um, young gal um, had a, a moment on an airplane when a guy told her that she was moving from our community over to Lawrence because everyone was unfriendly.
1: Hmm.
0: And and she thought, Wow, I wonder if any of my neighbors would ever move out of my neighborhood because they just thought the neighborhood was unfriendly. So she made it her passion to make her neighborhood friendly. And so she and her husband began uh, putting their stroller on the porch. Uh, when someone walked by at the stroller, they'd throw their kids in the stroller, walk the opposite way around the block, run into them. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, we got kids. You got kids. We should get together. We should have dinner, that you know, kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And through that just simple activity, activity of neighboring, uh, slowly but surely, they developed a huge um, network of. Of young families and 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 stuff that are that are really socially connected now, and then they began to plant discovery groups out of that, and out of that connection, uh, you know, she she got the four generations again. Wow, so cool. We have, you know, with couples, we we still haven't figured out maybe two generations at the most, uh, with men. Uh, man, we struggle with men in, in, in multiplying groups. We can get men in groups, but we can't seem to, to multiply them. Um, and we discovered that uh, in an American culture, um, it's a churched culture. You know, I mean, we're secularists. We've got all kinds of you know, things going on that are you know, leading us away from you know, God and the Bible and that kind of stuff in a culture. But still, there's this thing when people's spiritual genes kick in um, they, they still think about uh, spiritual things being done in a box on a corner. And so it, it's really difficult to uh, to birth new ideas or new uh, expressions of ecclesia, you know, mm-hmm. for people. They still want to come to the big thing. They want to come to that Sunday morning thing and stuff like that. And so we're, you're just fighting against that to figure out, you know, how that can how we can play in that world. And I've developed an affection for Kenya simply because Kenya has a similar thing going on. Um, Christianity's been there for almost 200 years, long enough to have a Catholic church, strong Catholic church, a, a strong liberal Protestant church, and an evangelical church there. But yet they still have viral movements of the gospel going on there as well. And so... I, um, I co-sponsor a conference there every year in, in Kenya with a good friend of mine and, and stay close to that, just trying to learn from that culture of how they're doing it in a really church
1: culture. Mm-hmm. Well, cool, that um, kind of struck a, a chord with me. I think I'm still trying to figure out how to be a good neighbor. <laughs> 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 I know some of my neighbors, but yeah. not as well as I, I really should. Yeah. Um, you are... As I mentioned earlier, you've been doing this a long time. Um, I think you would even mentioned to me earlier, you're kind of going in this transition of into this more grandfatherly role at Shoal Creek. Um, having been doing ministry as long as you have, what, what kinds of things would you share to the next generation about um, what they should prepare for, what they should be prepared for as they try to do this thing?
0: Well, you know, my, uh, one of my mentors, Howard Hendricks, um, used to always say that, you know, you've got, uh, several things to exegete, you know, you, you've got, uh, the word of God, um, you, have got your culture and you, then you've got to figure out how do you get the message that comes from the word to your culture. And so I think that's the, those three things are, are things that, that, you know, we really need to focus on, um, I grew up in a culture where, uh, a Christian culture, where um, we were really talking to ourselves and and not understanding what was happening right in front of us and getting inside people's heads and understanding what they were thinking and feeling and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, 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 I would just... Um, uh, the biblical studies, understanding the Bible, that kind of stuff is, is absolutely you know vital. But it's just as vital, I think, to understand your culture and mm-hmm. where it's going. Because you've got to say something. You've got to relate somehow to that culture. And what does it look like? How do you connect with people you know, who are trying to find meaning in life? Because I, I, I still fundamentally believe that every person is a theologian. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just trying to make meaning with life and so we're we're trying to help them understand that 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 meaning is made you know when you understand that there's a creator god who who gets first say in everything you know that that if you could come to understand how you orient your life around his heart and his mind um you you would discover life it was as as it was intended to be so getting that message to them is hard. So I, I would, I would really sp- you know, spend some time reading, understanding culture and, and that kind of stuff at the same time, trying to figure out how do I get the, how do I get this message, this truth over? And, you know, what I, I think the biggest thing that hurts us is, is, is that, um, what we don't know that we don't know is our biggest enemy. Um, and there's a guy Ray Dalio, um, who wrote a book called principles. Um, it's a long book. So if, you know, if people are listen to podcasts and go get books really quickly, I'll warn you, it's a long book. <laughs> um, but uh, in it, he says, and he's a profane guy, so he uses a lot of language that you may not like. Um, but uh, in it, he says um, that, uh, that he doesn't know anything about anything. And the only reason that he got to be one of the most successful investors on Wall Street um, was that his biggest fear was that was what he didn't know. And so he spent his life trying to figure out what he didn't know, hmm. um, and uh, I think there's some wisdom in that, you know, to understand that, because I, I think there's a a fallacy of our uh, of our own understanding. We don't embrace our finiteness, hmm. and and the reality is is that I'm finite, and I will never know everything I need to know. I will spend eternity getting to know an infinite God, and and being stunned by the wonder of his grace and glory and stuff and so when I come with my theological constructs and thinks I think I have them everything fixed and and I it's locked and I understand everything uh, I think that's a fallacy of my finiteness uh, that's a danger and so I, I need to have a healthy self-doubt in in what I think and believe so that I don't get caught by you know not knowing what I don't know mm-hmm
1: so, as you look at our culture as it is today, and as you kind of maybe look at the tra- trajectory, um, what is your own sense about, you know, what does the scripture have to say to connect to our culture um, right now? Well, I think it's an exciting time, you know.
0: I, I think it's an exciting time because it's never been more like the first century than, hmm. than ever before. Uh, for us. I I don't think we're in a post-Christian culture. I think we're in a pre-Christian culture. You know, I think we've gone from, you know, you know, pre-Christian to, you know, modern, you know, post-modernity. I think we're in a a pre-Christian type of culture now where there is not a category, you know, in people's thinking and their spreadsheet to be able to calculate life. There's not a category of church. Or Bible or even God and and so we, we go back to the beginning and so you know our biggest apologetic you know is that neighbor is that neighboring is that love is that ability to, to reach out to people and be genuine to them and you know no longer do, do we have the opportunity to share our faith with them because they're not interested in our faith um, but they are interested in our story and so we have the opportunity to invite them into our story and as, as we live authentically uh with them uh and helping them see jesus authentically change our lives Um, i think we have a grand opportunity you know to see the gospel prosper in our country it's just that we've got to get that that core of people who stop thinking about you know us and them sharing our faith getting them to believe what we believe and and think about okay just come into my story And see how Jesus makes a difference. The danger of that is that the average churchgoer, I'm not sure Jesus really makes a difference. It's like I got my ticket punched to heaven, Mm -hmm. uh, but he doesn't really make a difference in how I, I love my wife, how I treat my kids, how I drive, how I, you know, prosecute myself at work. You know, do I... You know, and that kind of stuff, you know, am I, I, do I have this heart to serve? Do I have the heart to love? Do I have this, you know, and finding those kinds of things, you know, really important. So I, I think it's an exciting time and it's a time that, that we, we need to be just, you know, experimenting, Mm -hmm. you know, with with however we can.
1: You mentioned inviting people into your story. Um, I want to hear maybe just a little bit about your story. When was a time you felt like you were in a pit? And you felt like the Lord pulled you out?
0: Well, it's funny. I, I had to answer that question last night. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, this is crazy. I, I asked a question of a group last night. Um, you know, share a God moment in your life when, when God interrupted your world, you know, in, in a supernatural way or whatever. And when I was a, a freshman in college, I'd left Hawaii. I, I went to high school in Hawaii and I went to Baylor University. And I was there and I didn't know anybody. And I just potlucked for a roommate. Uh, I had a roommate. Um, who uh, was a cowboy from Eastern Texas who chewed tobacco and got the glass, little glasses from the, the um, uh, cafeteria and spit in them and left them around our room. And he had a cardboard box on his side of the room for a trash can. And when he had, didn't have an empty glass, he would pour the tobacco juice out in the cardboard box in my room. you know And, I, and I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, this is like him. Anyway, I was just one night, um, it was a weekend night. I'm sitting there lonely, hurting, and I just prayed. I said, God, um, if this faith thing is worth anything, um, you need to do something because I'm, I'm ready to just chuck it. You know, I'm ready to go join a fraternity and you know get drunk like the rest of my hall is and stuff like that. I, I just, I'm done. You know, you, you better do something. I hadn't get those words out of my mouth until the phone rang now, you know, I'm, this is back in the seventies. So it's a, you know, rotary dial phone or maybe, maybe it was a punch yes. button and it rings, you know, really loud on the desk and I pick it up and, and it was, uh, the tribe, uh, that i had come to faith in uh, back in Hawaii calling me. Wow. And, uh, and, it was just like that moment where I needed to be encouraged and, and, and really lifted up, you know, mm-hmm. and stuff. God just, you know, intervened and, and just went, Bam, you know. Um, and w- one more, I, mm-hmm. you know. Just, I know we get out of time here, but uh, I had a conversation today with a guy. Um, he had visited Shoal Creek, um, and you know, Shoal Creek comes out of the Will Creek movement. And most of, most people would criticize that whole movement for for watering down the gospel, and and they would you know look at what we do. We we still today don't do any musical worship on Sunday morning. It's still pretty much a seeker type event. Um, and so most people, you know, without ever getting into it, would say that it's uh, it's it's um, the 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 speaking, the preaching is is uh, is shallow and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And so this guy told me this morning on the phone. He says, "Yeah, I visit, I've been trying to find a church, and that kind of stuff." And he says, "Man, I have never heard his deep teaching in any church. I just went, let me record this. <laughs> it was just God sort of confirming, you know, that that it." it and, and it is true. I think it's true. I could explain that, you know, a little bit. But but we have the, the grand opportunity. If you can talk in regular, normal language without talking Christianese, you can actually tell people that they're sinners, you know, depraved individuals, if you include yourself in it mm-hmm. at the same time. And, and, and you can actually speak to the deep truths of the scriptures, you know, to an audience that's mostly non-believing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that moment this morning was like, yeah. I haven't had that accusation lately
1: (laughs) cool well Roy I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation um, and thank you for listening at home or wherever you are Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation rate us on iTunes Um, and if you didn't I suppose don't rate us on iTunes (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time
0: Thanks for joining us for this discussion about the DNA of gospel movements. Our hope at New Generations North America is to catalyze and nurture discovery-based disciple-making movements in North America. We'd love for you to share this podcast with your network. Check out the resources in the show notes to pursue your journey and join us if you'd like. If we have some resources or some tools that you can use, make sure that you take advantage of them. Thanks so much and thanks for being here.